Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Graham Smith from Lightpoint Medical, discuss leading a commercial stage medtech company, taking over a startup with the goal of exiting to a strategic or going public, his experience with cancer and the problem that they are trying to solve, the relationship with medtech distributors, the reason for calling it a Series C1 and Series C2, the dynamic between Graham and the previous CEO, the valuation of a pre-revenue medtech company working towards his sixth exit, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Graham Smith. Thank you very much for being with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to be with us here today. We're going to talk about your current raise that you're going through, the round that you closed earlier this year. And why we're here is I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs like yourself as well as investors around the world. And actually, I'm in Miami area right now, and you're all the way up in England and UK and Scotland. So I should say UK in general. Um, and so I've discovered that there's no silver bullet or even specific formula or magic about how to raise or invest capital in med tech. So my goal here was I wanted to extract insights to demystify this process so that we can help those who can benefit from the information now and also for future generations of medtech innovators. And this audience of medtech entrepreneurs and investors listening in now, um, I believe the goal of this is to share your stories and advice with what I imagine that first time founder or CEO who has no clue at what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And this particular discussion, what I wanna focus on is once again, your current capital raise, some of those mechanics that you're going through on that raise that you're just kicking off. Um, Light, Lightpoint Medical did actually close around earlier this year, so we could talk about some of the mechanics and also the differences of that round versus this round. And then even in general, um, you being in the UK and having this global focus now of commercialization and you being hired to raise a commercial organization. So hitting these points of later stage capital, commercial capital, being hired as a CEO to commercialize a company, all of those facets I wanna kind of dig into. So that's the purpose of why we're here. Um, before we jump into any of all the good stuff, meaning your background and also the company that you're raising and running right now, I wanna have a few open-ended questions to kind of kick off the conversation, if you will. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup why or why not? Or would you add anything else important? 
yeah, I think uh, for sure. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way, Giovanni. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, um, and um, yeah, it's it's one of the things that I do get greater pleasure from uh, being and having been in the medtech industry for nearly thirty two years now. Uh, I'm finding that the experience gained and the mistakes made and the lessons learned are are valuable for uh, the next generation of entrepreneurs coming through. Uh, people are key uh, from the people come the ideas, uh, from the the people come the motivation and the desire. Um, so, and the medtech industry is blessed with some real characters, um, superb intellectual uh, kind of pool of people, as well as uh, real characters and um, people with real drive. And the medtech sector is is really quite unique as well in, in a broader sense in that the, the multiples gained from a successful exit are often as high as any, maybe bar the software industry um, of any kind of sector. So it's a great, it's a great sector to be in. So people are absolutely key and uh, relationships are key. And one of the things that I've done over the years is cultivate and maintain the contact with the people that I value in the industry from the very early stages of, of being a product specialist uh, in auto suture based up in Norwalk in Connecticut. Um, from that very early stage and from even from some of the relationships I built there uh, of individuals moving on into management positions and senior um, kind of C-suite uh, positions and, and companies. So uh, you cannot overstate the it's a small industry you know and it's uh, a niche industry in many ways and so it doesn't take it takes a lifetime to, to build a reputation doesn't take long to ruin it so uh, value those relationships true um, and money yeah key you know unless you're fortunate enough to have um, to be involved in a, a med tech product and technology that has instant revenue and very little development then uh, being well-funded will take a lot of the stress and pressure away from the day-to-day -day activity, the day-to-day -day role of, um, of a startup medtech company. So I would say the money's key. And uh, in terms of what's missing, I would say now, uh, even more so than when I was uh, initially in the industry, um, it's really vital to fully understand the regulatory and clinical pathways and barriers. You know, the evidence-based medicine is, is the, the gold standard now. In the early days, we, we were able um, to display and show technologies which were very unique and very, uh, very obviously uh, innovative. And if the surgical teams liked what they saw, often it would just be a case of asking the the theater manager to, to place a PO, but that's all changed now. Uh, management teams are far more controlling of the surgical teams, the clinical teams. So you need to get everything in place to make sure your route to market is not blocked because of some regulatory or clinical barrier that you haven't become aware of. So I would say that's as important now as the people and the money. I like that. Thank you for adding that. It is an important factor. And, and I think I've been putting more thought about this where people and money are 
realistically the lifeblood of a startup, right? Of any startup. Um, but when I throw in that adjective med tech startup, that's really where those nuances, like you just mentioned, truly come in because of this regulated industry that we work in, et cetera. Um, med tech and medical technologies in general uh, are not as easy, or I should say, um, yeah, not as easy as, as some of these commercial or direct-to-consumer style companies where you can just get up and generate revenue immediately. So I, I like those nuances. Thank you for adding that. Um, I want to jump into my next question. This one's I have fun with it. I, I really do, just because there's always a story, maybe some even personal anecdotal story that you might have. But do you believe in luck and how much does luck play into the success of medtech? Yeah, I mean, I've often said that I've I've been very fortunate in business. I think luck does play a part. I mean, being in the right place at the right time with a product that the market's calling out for, sometimes it's by design, but often you find it's it's just you're in the right place at the right time. Um, I think back again to my early days of we had innovative new products. U.S. Surgical were the first company to launch a disposable trocar and the first disposable laparoscopic shears. Um, and we were in the situation in those early days, which is very unique of literally having to, uh, to kind of ration which hospitals were getting what. And it gave you a huge leverage, of course, in terms of your other products and business if uh, the surgical teams were demanding your product. So luck definitely plays a part because on the other side of that, you can have a brilliant product that is just timed very badly for the marketplace. And uh, no matter how skillful you are, how talented you are, how brilliant the product is, then um, you can often find it's, uh, it's, it sinks into oblivion because it's just not the right timing for it. So I think that there can be an element of luck. People say you make your own luck, and there's, I suppose there is some of that. But um, I do believe that, uh, you know, fortune plays a part, luck plays a part. Um, but the more you can strategically think through your path and where you're intended heading, you can often uh, ensure that luck is balanced in your direction. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the things that have happened to me in my career, I would love to say it was all due to design and, I was, and, and my skill and expertise. But truthfully, it was being in the right place at the right time and uh, just making sure that you took advantage of that situation. Well, I love that. I mean, Anyone in the med tech industry is a hard worker. Uh, you're, you're not in this industry. There's a lot of other industries that are easier to work in, I should say. So being in med tech, you're naturally a hard worker, some more than others. But um, this notion of luck, right, the controlling the controllables. And, and if you're in this industry, there's only so much you can do. But obviously, what you can control, there's a lot of hard work that goes into doing the best you can, creating the best product. But these aspects of market timing, et cetera, that are just literally out of our control sometimes. I always like to bring that about just because the innovation is the beauty within this whole industry. And um, obviously helping patients at the end of the day is why we do all this. But there is this notion of this thing that we can't control sometimes. And oftentimes there's technologies that should have seen the light of day that didn't. And other times ones that eh, the world could have possibly done without ended up getting through. So right, I agree. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier, thirty-two year career in med tech. If you know, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, taking over Lightpoint Medical as a CEO, et cetera, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Would you build your career differently if you could? Uh, yeah, I would absolutely do it 
um, again, it's the, the medical device industry has been really good to me um, and to my family, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, it's it's where my skill set is, and I would do it again, but definitely I would do things differently as well. And I think that I was probably a, a late starter, and um, you know, in many ways, I think that uh, I think if I had my time away, I'd be a bit more confident in my own my own abilities and uh, look to push myself on a bit faster to get. You know, you can. I started in a, a large strategic, which built up and 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 moved on. And so my my experience in medical device startups came after the, uh, an acquisition. Uh, at that time, it was by Tyco. It's now Medtronic, um, and uh, that that if I look back and I can see some of the managers and directors of the company um, and look at their skill set and the positions they achieved, um, some very well deserved and others you would think well actually I could have done that so I think I would probably look to have more confidence in my own ability and I would have pushed on faster sooner I think that's probably how I would uh, express that like that a lot this this one this one's a fun one um this whole idea about being a med tech CEO and, and even scratch med tech CEO uh, if you haven't been one before if you have only watched the Netflix movies and everyone who's got a CEO wears a Rolex and Rolex and drives a Bentley and all this other stuff. I wanted to get the real picture of what it truly means to be an entrepreneurial med tech CEO. And the question is, is it glamorous being a med tech CEO? Not the way I do it. Um, it's definitely not. Um, <laughs> No, definitely not. I mean, the some of the parts of the role that I enjoy most of all is, and I still do it. I mean, we were in those early days, we still used to, in fact, we were targeted to scrub up during procedures. We had to do it. So we would scrub up during uh, colorectal, thoracic, uh, cardiac, urology, gynecology procedures. And we'd be there uh, directly with the surgical teams, uh, making sure that our instruments were being used technically correctly. Um, and the value of working with a surgical team with your devices uh, while you're there and you're seeing the feed, the real-time feedback, I've never lost my, uh, well, my fascination with being in that space in the operating room and theatres, it's called here in the UK, but, uh, and I've never taken it for granted. And for me now, with any company I've been involved with, um, I've always had an active role in the clinical arena. Uh, I like to see the device being used, my, my, whatever the devices that I'm currently working with. At the moment, it's a, it's a Sensei Gamma probe for cancer detection. And uh, you really get the direct feedback from the surgical teams of changes that you can make to your products and so forth. So the clinical side, Plus, the, right now in the fundraising side, it's absolutely wall-to-wall -wall presentations of, uh, you know, very repetitive. Uh, you feel it's sometimes it's a thankless task. You're explaining the same things over and over again. Uh, and but the, so those, those elements of the CEO role, which sometimes can be delegated, I like to take on myself. I, I like to get the feeling of building the, the product uh, and building the, uh, the uptake of the use of the product internationally. Uh, I've worked in over 55 countries in the med tech uh, sector, actually directly, been in operating rooms in most of those countries. 
So it's still a case of waiting for surgeons, you know, putting your greens on, hanging around. Uh, seems to be often a lot of wasted time, but the, the, the valuable time that you get when your instrument's being used and you're there to give verbal technical support can't be overestimated. And that's why for me, CEO in many ways, I'm just like a ringmaster. I've got a very talented team in Lightpoint Medical. They're far cleverer than I am in terms of engineering, physics, uh, clinical, you know, we've got a tremendous team. Uh, and it's just a case of ensuring we're almost in a big brush vision kind of way that everybody is uh, pushing at full speed and utilizing their skill and expertise to the fullest. And you don't get that if you micromanage a team of talented individuals. You've got to let them have their head uh, and push on. So it's a bit like being a ringmaster. But for me, uh, I'm out there as number one salesman. Um, I'm in the clinical arena, I'm pitching uh, on the money raises, you know, I'm doing the day-to-day -day stuff that I've been doing for nearly 30-odd years. And so uh, I've got a different title, but I still feel and have probably a lot more experience and I can help a lot more from make sure companies don't make the same mistakes. But uh, the titles are relevant to me, but the, the, the whole prospect of building a startup to the point of an exit either purchased by a strategic or an IPO, it's uh, a tremendous, tremendous joy. And um, I love it. And the name of the company, you've mentioned it, I've mentioned it, Lightpoint Medical. What does the name of your company mean? Yeah, so it, it's so Lightpoint Medical, fascinating company. I mean, I, I got to know uh, the founder and chairman, David Tuck, um, brilliant uh, mind and an excellent operator in the whole space of imaging and diagnostics. I mean, he's what he doesn't know about that sector is, is not worth knowing. And we served together as non-executive directors on a board about five, six years ago. And since then, I've been watching the development of Lightpoint Medical. And the name actually was more to do with the original product, which was a Chernikov luminescence imaging product. Um, which was was developed and launched, and then effectively let to to drift away when the opportunity to launch Sensei came. And the timing that we mentioned earlier of having a minimally invasive drop-in probe for uh, robotics or minimally invasive surgery, the the kind of need for that in the market was clearly far greater. So the, the company transitioned from that early stage product line for breast cancer to, and that was more of an external surgical open surgery product to the minimally invasive current offering of Sensei. And so it's very hard to do and my hat's off to the team. It all happened before I joined, but they've, it's, so you can really say that Lightpoint Medical, the name is more associated with the original imaging product than it is the current product line, but because of the track record and the fact that some of the staff have been there for six years, seven years, um, the, and the company has its track record and it's uh, everything structured, the, the kind of shareholders, the, the banking, all the things that would be difficult to, to, to change, there was still value in keeping the name, even though our product offering is very different now. So Lightpoint Medical doesn't really have a, a direct uh, correlation with the Sensei uh, Gamma problem that we now sell, but uh, the history is in the name, you know, the track records in the name. That's why I always ask the question. I, I love the story. 
behind the name. Um, so lo and behold, the man that everyone's been listening to thus far, Graham Smith, CEO of Lightpoint Medical. Tell us who you are, where you're from, personal if you can. How'd you build your academic and professional career? Basically, give this nice overview summation of who you are as a human and professional up until the time that you joined Lightpoint Medical. And then when we get there, I'll ask the question, what is Lightpoint Medical? And you can dig in there. Who are you, Randy? Um, well, I mean, the greatest joy I'm getting at the moment is from my grandchildren. You know, it's, it's brilliant. So I'm a grandfather, father, uh, family man. We've been married uh, 36 years now. So, um, you know, I think that first and foremost, uh, the kind of family side of my life is very important to me. And um, 32 years ago, I joined from a non-clinical background, uh, a company called Autosuture that uh, they, they took me from Scotland where I live to Norwalk in Connecticut. And it was a six-week training course, which was very intensive. Uh, it was renowned in the industry for the, the level of intensity, which effectively brought you back to teams of surgical connections and you were scrubbing up on a daily basis and continuing your education from there so um my my kind of my my family life and my business life uh, i'm very lucky to have a very supportive wife and family she's had to endure lots of time traveling you know i've been all over the world but fortunately so have my family we've often used uh, opportunities to, to go together to congresses and various trips. So they've been all over the world too. And I think that's always a privilege, even though we mourn about it as executives. Uh, travel is an important part of, of my life, always, always has been. And I still, a bit like going into the OR, I still value the opportunity to experience other uh, cultures and, and individuals and see how products are marketed and used and the differences between Russia or India, China, Brazil, USA, you know, it's, it's, it's different. So I like to, uh, I like to, I like to start things. What I've come to realize about myself, it gives me the greatest pleasure taking something and, and building it, you know, and then moving it to the point uh, of an exit. And I've had five, uh, trade sales in my time that I've been involved with uh, to strategics. Uh, three of them were American companies, startups that I was involved in. One was Swiss and one was Australian. Uh, they were sold to companies like Sanofi Biosurgery, uh, Novartis, Lemaitre, Cook Medical, uh, ResTech. So um, that whole experience has been brilliant as well. So it's, it's not really a job if you enjoy what you're doing. And and I suppose that's really what I'm saying to you is it's it's something I really enjoy. Uh, I get a great deal of pleasure in in uh, in working with a team to to build a company like like Point Medical. That's why I've been brought in is to help them now commercialize the brilliant uh, kind of foundation that they've built for the company and move it on now to uh, to make more noise internationally, build clinical data get the registrations all in place and start to sell products. So, um, yeah, so it was a bit of a mix there between my personal life and uh, and the company side. But to me, it's all it's all one. So I don't think uh, I would be doing this if I didn't enjoy it. I like that. And, and I agree. I mean, if you, if you love what you do, it's all blended together. I, I'm 
also guilty of not having too much of a barrier in between. It's just family and work together. It's one life. It's good. Um, yeah. And so now we're here at Lightpoint Medical. Let, let's dig into what is the company. You've mentioned that you have an ex- exceptional team. You mentioned why you're or why you have been brought in and what you'll be doing in commercializing the company. But what is the technology doing? What kind of patients are you touching? That kind of stuff. Okay. So, I mean, we're, we're in the emotive uh, cancer field. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, I had a cancer myself and uh, had to go through surgery and then chemo and all the kind of follow-up that that entails. So it's got a special meaning for me to be in this space where uh, even in surgery today, surgeons have got very little tools that if they are, um, if they look at some suspect tissue to find out exactly what that tissue is, unless they take a, you know, they could, they could look to uh, get a histopathological report on a, on a, a biopsy that they take during the surgery, but sometimes they have to wait and there's a delay for the results to come back. So um, we've got a product uh, currently called Sensei, which is a gamma probe, which is allowing the surgeons to make sure not only are they taking out all of the cancer and locate where the cancer is, but making sure they don't touch good tissue, which is equally as important because if you damage a nerve bundle or something in a, in a, in a, a sensitive part of the body, then it can lead to uh, secondary effects, which are very negative, such as loss of loss of limbs, loss of various different um, bodily functions. Um, so it's really important uh, for surgeons to be confident that they're going to the tissue point where they, they know with the scanning and the technology, technological advances there are in that arena, and um, they can use a tool like Sensei to help them during surgery. So there's a bit of a personal element in there for me as well, which is great. And now I know what it what it what it uh, what it means to hear the words, you know, you have cancer. It's it's not a nice thing. And one in three of us will hear those words uh, in our lifetime. And I'm sure all of everybody listening to this podcast will either know someone who's had cancer or a family member or friend or something. It's a still the main treatment for cancer, despite all the massive amount of research that's going on in the cancer field, is surgery. Um, so there isn't a magic bullet yet. There isn't a way of uh, stopping cancer happening. Cancer numbers are on the rise globally, uh, despite all the work we're doing. So Lightpoint Medical's in that in that field. Uh, that's what we're doing. And we're also very timely in the space that as well as uh, being in cancer detection, we're in the arena of minimally invasive surgery. Um, And that's been a huge development of my career, you know, from the very early stages of uh, a gallbladder being removed laparoscopically, which is kind of unheard of and and met a lot of objections from the existing medical community until clinical evidence started to build over time that indeed there was less blood loss, less tissue trauma, um, less chance of infection, faster healing, less anesthetic, all the, all the kind of elements that we now know are standards uh, that, and the reason why minimally invasive surgery is, is on the rise. But on the other side of that, you've now got robotics. So you've got the minimally invasive side and then you've got the robotics side. So the, we, we, we saw very clearly that the existing gamma probes on the market would not do a very good job um, of the surgeon trying to get the 
uh, active end of the probe to the exact point in the body that they needed to uh, to analyze. So uh, that's why Sensei has been developed because it's highly maneuverable. It's uh, easy, goes down a 12 mil port and you can maneuver and hold it into position very simply and easily. So we're riding on the back of that um, surge into robotics, which is happening globally. And that's for sure a new trend that's happening uh, globally right now. So um, we're in the right place at the right time to take advantage of that. And in our pipeline, which we just finished a, a management review this morning, I mean, we're really excited because we've got some game-changing game technologies coming through in our pipeline. Some amazingly clever uh, engineers and physicists uh, in our product development team. And uh, what we're developing right now is a game-changer in terms of cancer detection during surgery. So we have Sensei, which is using gamma technology, which has been well-known for the last 20-odd years in hospitals. Nuclear medicine uh, has been on the rise internationally. Uh, fluorescence is a huge sector as well. Um, so we've got the Sensei product to deal immediately with those issues. And then we've got some pipeline products that are also going to, I think, make the name for this company and make it easy for one of my key goals, which is to get an exit for the shareholders in a few years' time. Very nice. Very, very nice. So I, I want to segue after now learning about who you are, the company you're representing, and also having a little fun answering my questions to kind of kick off the conversation. Um, I, I want to just kind of give you an open-ended question so that we can go down that rabbit hole. Earlier this year, Lightpoint, Med or I should say in 2021 rather, um, Lightpoint Medical made the announcement that they raised a round of funding. And you were also hired somewhat around the similar time, just right before the close, uh, to be the CEO who's gonna take this company through commercial launch. And as it stands now, and by the way, the reason why I'm bursting this bubble is you and I had previously discussed this, and that's the reason why I know what you're building <laughs> into it. Um, you're now going to be kicking off and raising another round. So my, my big question here is, my big open-ended question here is, the round that was closed earlier last year and the purpose of that combined with you joining and what you're going to be utilizing that money with and anything that you can speak to how that round was closed, who invested it, the type of investors, all that kind of good stuff, yeah. um, grants, whatever it may be. And then we'll, once you get done with that story of you joining, you closing the round, and then here we are, what that next round looked like, we'll take it in two parts. So then I have some more minute or detailed questions I want to pull out of that for you. Okay, so I mean, yeah, when I, when I joined, I mean, the, the, the last round, the C1 round for Lightpoint, Lightpoint's been very good at raising money over the years. They've raised about a total, about, I think it's about 18 million in total since their inception. Um, and the C1 round had been open for about 18 months. So the first thing that I did when looking at that is that, so, okay, we've got, to, we've got to park this at some point. And there were some significant monies still to come in on the C1 round at the old valuation. Valuating, valuation of a company pre-revenue is always a tough thing to do. So you have to go historically, you've got to look at existing uh, value, um, where the assets are, you know, what the potential is, the kind of all those fine things that come into uh, helping a team, a management team to value a company. But the company, based on the last round, closed uh, a 35 million valuation. Uh, Pre-revenues with the work that had been done, the IP that's in place, the 
regulatory approvals and various things that were starting to come through weren't reflected in that uh, 35 million valuation. So we, we set about initially with the team when I came on board, I looked at the, the business plan and I looked at how the company had intended to approach the global market. And the plan initially had been to go direct in certain targeted countries. In all five of the trade sales I've been involved with, we've used the distributor model. And the distributor model is one I know very, very well. I started my first distributor management about 30 odd years ago. And so I'm very well aware of what makes a, a good medical device distributor tick. And for me, uh, the first very simple change to the business plan would be to move us from that direct approach to distributor model. Why? Partly it's because um, it's very tough for a company, uh, for example, to, to let's say the German market, which is always a lucrative market for any medical device company. You know, if you're employing staff, if you're finding premises, if you're setting up a company, bank accounts, all the normal stuff that you'd have to do to have a direct operation in a country like Germany, especially now with Brexit, because now the UK is, is separate from the EU. So there is a very definite difference. There are some complications now and import export side that, Everything has, has definitely changed and we're, we're navigating our way through those, those Brexit changes. But it was clear to me that uh, by using a distributor model, a couple of things would, would happen. Number one, we'd have far faster access to other markets. And that's proven itself to be so. Our first order came from Australia, of all places. And um, the Australian uh, Institute, Peter Mack in Melbourne, have been fascinated by Sensei and are just in the process of kicking, kicking off a study. And one of our strategic partnerships that we've just recently signed as well is with Telix Pharmaceuticals, who are an Australian-based uh, PLC. And uh, Telix are giving us the opportunity to tap into a pharma revenue stream and giving them the opportunity to be active in uh, therapeutic uh, elements of, for example, uh, prostatectomy, whereas before they were mainly selling into diagnostics. So we're looking at these strategic partnerships. But um, when I look at the distributor model, there's a couple of things that always excites me because we know that to tap into the medical devices, uh, medical device distributors, talent, knowledge, local resources, key opinion leader contacts, knowledge of the regulatory pathways, management, contacts in the hospital units, all of those key things, uh, it's going to cost us. So we need to give up a portion of our margin to a medical device distributor uh, and contract with them on that basis for exclusivity. And we become partners. You know, we provide our technology, the training, the support. They then go about building the marketplace uh, for Sensei in, let's say, South Korea. Um, but then if I look forward, as I have to do uh, in my big brush planning uh, and exit, then I know very well, having been in strategics myself, uh, one of the things that's very attractive at the, at the distributor model when they're looking to acquire a med tech technology company is they'll look at the 30, 35, 40% that we're having to give to the distributor in margin. They can see immediately how that can be brought back in house. So it makes the number crunching much more effective and, and much more appealing. 
So that's why you often, the strategics, and you'll know that yourself from the, the MedTech uh, conferences we were talking about uh, uh, earlier, you know, there's, there's a definite pathway to exit, which involves the big strategics who've got their own pressures and their own businesses to build and their own margins, their own shareholders. But they look at, constantly, they're looking at the startup MedTech companies to see what's likely to help them build their bottom line. So they'll look at a company like us and they'll think, we like the technology. Uh, we've got direct sales forces globally. Uh, we'll, we'll make an offer for the company. We'll suck that back in our bottom line. We'll take that 40% margin back and the distributors are, are terminated at that point. It's, it's the game, MedTech med distributors know it. But the way that we handle our contracts is we make sure that the MedTech distributors also get a payday because if they've done the hard work of helping build in the market, they should be rewarded uh, if we manage to exit the company through a trade sale. So that's why we, uh, you know, we meet that change in the business plans been, has been a very important one. The whole team have bought into it. They understand uh, the rationale behind it and the thinking behind it. And, and that's great for us. So, uh, yeah, so you know that's 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 your vision. Is when, you, when you brought when you came on and you were hired as a CEO, that was the purpose of doing so. Um, if we go to the and by the way, that was fascinating. So thank you for the distributor model and also the margins on teeing a company up for exit. So hopefully the entrepreneurs listening and learn something. I just did. Um, with regards to the the raising of the capital specific for Lightpoint Medical, was that round that was closed at least announced, I believe of March, 2021, it mentioned 8 million. And I believe you called it a C1 round. Yeah. So tell us about that round. Was it an equity round? Was it yeah. that round? Was it who, what styles of investors invested in that? Was that round closed specifically to bring you on and help with this commercial launch? What was the purpose of that round and how did you get no, it? Um, no, we, we officially closed the round so it closed after I joined and we were looking at the whole business and then um, you know when I was speaking about the business plan earlier uh, that new business plan showed us quite clearly that there's we, we've got to build this company as though we're not going to be bought and we're not going to list or float we've got to build it as though we're going to survive from our own revenues and it's going to be within a set period of time usually that's about three years so we've set about our business plan um, to show at what point do we become self-sufficient. That showed us a certain period of time and then make, made it very clear to us how much money we're going to need to get us there and help to develop the, the product pipeline products to make sure that uh, all the regulatory pathways are in place. Uh, the distributor management role that I mentioned earlier, that's going to be rolled out. So the money that we need in the C2 round is to get us to the point of self-sufficiency. So that's, that's uh, and C1 was fascinating to me, and this company is fascinating because we are very unusual in that there's only one class of share in Lightpoint Medical. Everybody has the same shares. So whether it's the investor group or the staff, we've all got the same share. And that, that's a very nice dynamic there because there are no preferential shares in Lightpoint Medical. Now, uh, when we closed that round, we, we looked at the C2 round and thought, well, we, do we want to change that dynamic? Do we want to change uh, from that one class of share dynamic? And we didn't really want to. I mean, the management team 
really working well together. And we were looking at ways of, of raising enough money to get us to the point of self-sufficiency, but not to bring on an institutional investor as a cornerstone investor, because they come on their own demands. Uh, they come you know, with demands for preferential shares. They come with uh, you know, positions on the board. They come with uh, you know, various demands and warrants. Uh, and often companies find they spend an awful lot of time satisfying these very demanding venture capitalists uh, and other um, high net worth uh, institutions and individuals. But the effort to manage that is all encompassing. So what I wanted us to do for the next three years is to focus everybody's attention on building value in the company. So by getting the money in now, and bringing the money in that we need to get us self-sufficient, my management team are not going to be having to spend all day every day uh, in, in product presentations, in IP discussions, in uh, you know, legal discussions on various elements of an institution coming in and providing us with a kind of backbone support that sends a message to the marketplace. I understand that but it's not maybe right for us. So we are slightly different in that regard. I don't know many companies with over 300 uh, individual investors, all with the same class of shares. Um, and we've been very lucky. We've got significant grants from the EU and from the UK uh, governments because of the sector we're in and the technology. So we've, we've been working on that basis as well. So hopefully that explains a little bit. The C1 closing allowed us to close that open up the C2 round with a very clear objective of getting the money in that we need, but not changing the overall uh, feeling uh, within the company and the shareholders, management team, board of directors, everybody singing the same song is a, is a good message. And do you think um, in terms of the, the C1 versus C2, and just to be very clear, you're raising the C2 now, right? You're, you're yes. going you're to kick off the C2. And I, I like asking this question. Was there any psychology or specific reason as to call it C1, C2? Not Because we've been hearing more and more about these rounds being broken up into one and twos as opposed to series A, B, C, D. I mean, typically your next one would be another letter. Sometimes right. you're hearing them being broken up C1, C2. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, it's, it's, we want this to be the last round. Um, so we, we, the C, C1, um, C2, uh, it just seemed to, to fit nice. In fact, to be quite honest, um, it was named that before I joined, but it made sense to me to keep it the same way. So C1, C2, we, we don't expect to have the need for another round unless, uh, you never know, you never yeah. know. I mean, anything can happen. Uh, but our goal is uh, right now is to build the company to self-sufficiency in the next uh, period of time so that we don't need to uh, raise more money. Nice. Okay. So if you're going to be raising your C2, you just told the story of C1. I want to dig into that a little bit. Um, that I, I like asking this question. I've hired numerous CEOs for med tech startup companies before. And sometimes it's this chicken and the egg type thing where you need the CEO in order to convince the investors to give the money in. And other times um, you need the money to be able to hire a CEO, especially a qualified CEO, but 
you don't have the money yet. And sometimes you get stuck in this limbo period. Just out of curiosity, because the timing was fairly close between you joining and then closing the round. Um, was you joining the company part of that checkbox that gives a little bit more of the security and comfort to the investors to drop the money in? Yes, I think uh, you know our chairman, uh, David Tuck, a brilliant individual, and but he'll be the first to admit that um, commercial and commercial activity, whilst he's very competent, it's not his strength. Um, and so he's now our executive chair and is still very actively involved in our company um, and uh, is a big, big influence, of course. He's still the largest shareholder uh, and our exec chairman. So uh, David and I work well together. Um, so, yeah, it was part of it. It's, it's showing a, a development of the company structure, the management structure, uh, and a very definite direction that the board want the company now to take to commercial um, self-sufficiency. So, and I want to be sensitive to time. I do have some topics that I just want to cover in a concise way, if you don't mind. Um, I want to go back to one of the initial pieces that you brought up when you talked about the 35 million valuation, especially on a pre-money, or I should say pre-revenue generating company. Right. Uh, I want to hear, I want to have the entrepreneurs hear this because valuation is a big topic and we could yeah. probably spend the next three hours talking about valuation, right. but just in your general opinion, the value, the valuation of a pre-revenue generating med tech company. Yeah. What's the best way, simplistically speaking, to even go about that? I mean, you know, when you get downstream and all these analysts, they use black shoal models and it gets very intense and complicated with mathematical equations and all that. But when you're a pre-revenue generating company, valuation's tough. I mean, obviously when you start hitting yeah. milestones, the goal is to actually increase that valuation per the last round, but what's your thoughts on pre-revenue generating company valuation? Yeah, it is tough. And there is no easy answer to this in my experience anyway. I mean, history plays a part of it. So you've got to look at the money that's been invested by shareholders in the company. That gives the company a very base valuation right from the get-go, because if people are uh, investing their uh, their, their money into Lightpoint Medical at a certain share, share point level, then the valuation becomes almost, uh, almost a given. But then you've got to look at things like what's the value of the IP, what's the, what's the structure of the company, um, what are the pipeline products. There are a number of intangibles that are very difficult to put a value on. But you'll quickly know if you miscalculate and you launch a round where the share price is not being bought into, then the validity of your valuation then becomes questionable. Uh, and that's not a good situation to be in. So we, we our valuation of 35 million has stood, stood for about two years uh, during the C1 round. Um, and since that point, we had uh, CE Mark, FDA approval, TGA in Australia, the restructure of the management team, our first sales, the new distribution model, there were a number of things to say, well, okay, let's look at the valuation now, take into account all those things. And we, of course, we, we spoke to numerous of our shareholders, investors. We've got some um, institutions in there, med tech institutions and companies that are 
uh, and, a, and a board that is extremely experienced in, in med tech development. So all of those things we have to say, well, this is the number we're getting to. When you take all those things into account, here's where we get to. Uh, and we've launched uh, the round with a valuation of 50 million on the company, share price of uh, 0.9917, which is, will tell you that the company's got roughly 50 million shares in circulation. Um, and um, so that, that's what we're going at. And we've had a great response from that, um, that, uh, that valuation of the company. We, we've already uh, got off to a flying star and um, a number of pretty significant uh, what you would call cornerstone investors. Now, uh, I'm going to probably touch on a little bit the, the way that we've opened the round, which is we've got an equity element and we've got a debt element. And we've done this very definitely. Uh, one of the innovations here in the UK that happened uh, during COVID was the, the British government uh, launched a convertible loan note and it was called the Future Fund. And uh, this convertible loan note was effectively a loan to a company, and there were over a thousand companies took advantage of this, um, and we did too. And some of our shareholders, especially one uh, gentleman called David Topless, uh, who's been a shareholder with the company for over six years, we've got some really experienced uh, money men. Uh, he won't mind me calling him that in our in our shareholder uh, kind of group, and uh, we've got a very close contact with our shareholders. We're constantly communicating with them and they with me and so he looked at the future fund model and he thought he could he could tweak it slightly to make it even more attractive for investors and family offices and even PE firms so we're looking at some institutions who are now looking at us very closely if they decide to come in it, it it's like taking institutional money but without the downside of the warrants and the preferential shares and the time and all that things they will look the CLN offering and the return that we're offering them and they'll say okay that's 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 a place we'd like to put our money and they're making a statement by uh, loaning the company money through the convertible loan note uh, at the same time uh, the CLN element is there for individuals that want to take advantage of that and on the equity side again a government scheme called EIS which is the uh, enterprise uh, allowance scheme effectively allows uh, shareholders who have uh, to gain tax advantages by investing in a company like ours, basically. So many of our shareholders are EIS beneficiaries, and uh, the convertible loan note doesn't that doesn't um, function on the EIS level. So we've got equity on the one side and the debt on the other side. Now we're raising we believe we'll raise more money on the debt side than the equity side. And that'll change the, the kind of the feeling, the structure, if you like, the look of like Point Medical. But our goal is to build a company within the next three to five years to between a 200, roughly 200 million valuation as our target. So when it comes to the point of paying back the loan, it's not gonna be that hard to find the money to pay back the loan if we've managed or and achieved our objective of uh, a 200 million valuation, it'll be a, a fraction of that value. So our thinking is, yeah, it's not, it's not as inexpensive as taking equity in. We're we're really taking on a, a debt instrument into the company, which isn't minded much if we do decide to float. If we decide the exit route is going to be a flotation, um, usually that's not a big issue on a, on a balance sheet to have debt there. It can be if it's a if it's an acquisition or 
another form of exit. But really, we, the way we're looking at this is an IPO, IPO doesn't preclude a sale uh, and the sale doesn't preclude an IPO. So the whole thing could be worked together. We're going to have to be incredibly active and, and uh, on our toes over the next couple of years to keep looking at what we're achieving, uh, the areas we're moving into, and what best dynamic to take advantage of when we get to the point of deciding how best to exit the company. And at 62, which I'm 62 now, I'm looking on this as my kind of swan song project. I've been involved in five strategic <laughs> sales, so this will be my sixth. And then uh, I think that I'll be happy to hang up my hat and uh, maybe take more advisory roles and uh, board positions. But uh, and enjoy the Probably be my last CEO role. <laughs> and have more time with the grandbabies. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I wanted just to end on that. I'll be sensitive to time real quick, but I just wanted to, because that, that's unique. I mean, on this podcast series within MedTech Startups, we've talked about grants, non-dilutive funding, and various aspects of that around the world with different sovereign funds and, and systems, and obviously equity rounds. And, that, and they can take place from anything from angels to offices, to family offices, to high net worth individuals, to traditional um, institutional investors, right? Right. You mentioned the first time alone, alone style, right? Or, or yeah. simply having to pay back the money on this one. But yeah. I wanted just to make it very clear for, especially all those earlier stage entrepreneurs out there, because um, we have talked about grants and non-dilutive funding. We have talked about equity rounds in various capacities. But when you do take on debt, when a, when a med tech company and startup takes on debt, realistically, I'll be definitive and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you can't do that unless you are generating revenue, because if you're not generating revenue, there's no way to pay back the debt if you're still in raising capital mode without having some sort of revenue generation. Yeah, that's correct. You, you have to be planning to be able to pay back the loan, ideally from your revenues. Now, it, it's not beyond uh, possibility that if for some reason revenue plans stall or there's another black swan event like COVID. I mean, goodness me, who could have predicted that? But I mean, it's been two years of absolute uh, challenge. But uh, in any case, uh, another CLN could be possible at that point to pay off the first CLN. There's various ways we can do this. And we've taken into account all the different options. We've taken advice from a lot of our advisors and um, a lot of the financial brain power that we've got within our shareholder group and uh, with the, the people with a vested interest in us uh, succeeding. So uh, we think we've, we're doing the right thing here where uh, it's, it's an exciting model and it, it's pretty unique. And it, it is true that having a debt and equity element to the, to the round is, is pretty unique. So um, yeah, but we're excited and it's been well received so far. And, you know, we're just uh, in the process now of you know, another trip to London's coming up tomorrow and another three or four back-to-back -back meetings with uh, companies that have already been in our data room, looked at all the information and they're taking it to the next stage. So, Well, we wish you luck with that. that. And it, it does sound like very exciting time. So congratulations on getting C1 done last year. Congratulations on joining Lightpoint Medical. And Graham Smith, CEO of Lightpoint Medical. I want to say thank you very much for your time here today. I've learned a lot, whether it's the pre-money valuation, the, the, certainly the uniqueness of all common shares and no preferential shares in a company. I haven't heard that before. And then even that debt versus um, 
loan aspect, or I should say debt versus equity, like you had mentioned. I find that fascinating. So thank you for your time. I wish you all the best with C2 and closing that round so you guys can get sustainable and hopefully get your sixth exit coming up in the next couple of years here. And this is the MedTech Money Podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much, Graham. Thank you, Giovanni. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.